With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Informative and engaging. Rick Munn. Rick Munn on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Yes, you better believe it. It's Monday, the 12th of February, 2024. This is TNT, today's News Talk. I'm Rick Munn. This is Locked and Loaded, and we have loads coming up before the top of this hour. Gemma Cooper uh, will be joining me in a minute or two to discuss the latest breaking news. And also, I have two very special guests lined up for today. I have Kit Knightley joining me at around about 20 past. He is an independent journalist and a contributor to Off Guardian. And then uh, David Thunder, political, or uh, political, yeah, political philosopher extraordinaire, shall be joining me again uh, at 22, uh, leading us up to the top of the hour. So please stay tuned for that. Also worth uh, reminding you lovely people out there, massive month this month for uh, Julian Assange and the uh, hearing that he's due to have in London later on this month. I was going to say next month, but we're into February already. So uh, from the 20th up to the 23rd, of Feb at least, uh, TNT will be covering the events live. We'll have people in the ground live in London and also uh, follow up from that uh, forever how long it takes for this uh, story to be covered and broadcast to you live from the ground. So please make sure uh, you stay tuned to us for that here on TNT Today's News Talk. Uh, a lot going on at the minute. I saw a post put up this morning by uh, none other than Senator Malcolm Roberts from the One Nation Party. He's based out of uh, Queensland in Australia, uh, talking about EVs in Canberra in Parliament. Uh, they're charging ports and facilities that have been installed in Canberra. He said inconvenient EVs in Canberra subsidized by taxpayers uh, in Senate estimates. And he's a good guy to have because he's in the Senate uh, and he can ask these questions directly and get direct answers from them. Uh, in Senate estimates, I asked who funded and supplied the electric vehicle charging stations, 58 in total at Parliament House in the capital. Taxpayers. Taxpayers are funding the Canberra bubbles fling with EVs to the tune of two and a half million Australian dollars in installation costs with a vague promise that this might be recouped again at some point down the line. So as the city with the highest average income in the country, over a hundred thousand uh, Aussie dollars per year, the Canberra bureaucrats are truly out of touch with the rest of Australia. So these are being in, uh, installed in Parliament, 58 charging stations at the taxpayers' expense. And the questions being asked is why? Where's the facilities for petrol cars? Where's the facilities for diesel cars? Why are you focusing in on the EVs in particular? So that's uh, Malcolm Roberts uh, being a proverbial thorn in the flesh for the globalists in Parliament in Canberra, in Australia, and it's great uh, to see him doing that. Uh, some guy in Ireland, Paddy McKenna, asked the question as well. I think this is a uh, put a wry smile on my face. So uh, if a white man who wears makeup and dresses like a black man to perform is considered hate speech, mocking blackface type uh, humor, or a hate crime against people of color, then why is a man who wears makeup and dresses like a woman to perform not also a hate crime against women? So if men dress up uh, in, uh, with black face paint on trying to pretend to be black people, dressing like black people is deemed to be hate speech or a hate crime, but if they dress up like a woman and say that they're a woman when in fact that they're not a woman, then why is that not? 
a hate crime against women as well. Uh, a very pertinent question to ask uh, by Patty McKenna on the X or the Twitter platform yesterday. So uh, interesting question asked by Patty there. We've got to take a brief pause right now. Gemma is incoming and when she arrives, well, she's here already. She just has to be unre unveiled uh, to the world at the minute. Uh, we will be talking about more breaking news on TNT. Stay tuned, don't go away. Keeping the commitment 24-7. I've been in the car all day and I got to listen. Can't get enough of it. You guys are doing a great job. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. You know, Gemma, this whole business about blackface and men dressing up as women, one's hate crime, one's not, it doesn't, no one ever asked the question, what's a man, okay? It's always, what's a woman? So when you want to put a politician on the, the spot, they always say, what's a woman? Define what a woman is, and then they'll stutter and they'll splutter unless they want to be accurate about what a woman actually is. Why are they never asking, what's a man? Good question. Good question. I mean, let's open that one out to the chat. Why? Mm -hmm. Why indeed? It's a question I've wrestled with myself, having done many stories about the trans agenda, about spe specifically, you know, men competing in uh, trans men competing in women's sports to gain the advantage. You know, that why? Good question. Mm -hmm. Why? You know, you would think actually that it would be the other way around because women have only really kind of come to the equality table in a very short space of time. You know, it was only in recent decades that a woman could have her own bank account, all sorts of things, you know. So we've achieved equality. You would think that women would want to be men because men have held mm. the upper hand for so long. You'd think the tide would be going the other way. So I don't understand it either. Uh, it is one of the most perplexing issues and debates of our time, I think. It is. And that's the thing, you know, what is a woman? You know, Matt Walsh, that guy, that American guy, you know, what is a woman? He made a documentary on it. Wasn't asking the question, what is a man? And even in the referenda that are coming up in uh, Ireland in March, you know, they're trying to get the word woman removed out of the uh, Irish constitution or, you know, the Irish, uh, you know, uh, the way that they're operating things over here. But there's no fighting getting the word man removed out of there too. The flip side of that too, which is what I always scratch my head about is during the scandemic, uh, during the COVID, scandemic years it was all about uh we have to you know wear masks and social distance to protect granny to protect granny so it was the other way around the the women were super protected there but did you ever hear anyone saying we need to protect granda everyone need to protect granddad no it was always granny it was always granny so uh a little bit of an imbalance there too just uh just to even things out don't you think what about granda yeah i, I, yeah. I mean it's you know i'd never even thought yeah. of that until you just raised it then it's absolutely yeah complete disparity of language and, and and language is the battlefield on what many of these ideologies affirm themselves you know woman granny it, it, you're quite right there you're quite right um yeah i mean it, it, when you set it out in the cold light of day especially the thing to do with did you say it was elections election the the thing about scrapping the word it's, woman completely it's a referendum that's coming up in march there's several referenda coming up in ireland coming up and they want to try and uh, dismantle what what a family is as well uh, they're calling it a stable unit. Basically, they believe that it will open floodgates for the multiple uh, immigrants that have came in here to bring extra family members over under the guise of an amendment in the Irish constitution. So they want to scrap uh, the traditional definition of what a family actually is. And they also want to uh, remove the word woman as well. So uh, a lot going on there too, Gemma, with a lot of ulterior motives. This isn't anything to do with equality or anything else. It's to do with blurring those boundaries and effectively erase what a woman actually is. Uh, in Irish society. 
and society at large. And when you when you say mm -hmm. it like that, when you hear it put like that, that's it's misogyny, isn't it? Really mm -hmm. deep rooted misogyny that's streaming through the heart of a global culture um, everywhere. All countries is being subjected to this debate. It's been thrust upon us. It's come out of nowhere. It's it's got the hands of engineering all over it. Um, but yeah, you know, it's a, being a woman myself. I find it very frightening. I find it deeply disturbing. Um, I, I'm I'm pleased about the backlash. I'm pleased about the many campaign groups that have sprung up worldwide in women's sport you know have the park run controversy at the end of last week they're removing all their um records and 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 whose gender is what gender to, to, just taking it out of public the public mm -hmm. domain because that they don't want to offend the trans lobby but women are really up in arms about that which is great maybe they'll go off and form their own park run it's a shame that's got to happen mm -hmm. but it's it, it is a war I do feel it's a war. I, I, you know, I feel like the last four years was a systematic war on all of us, and then out of that has come this other agenda. Um, and it, it, it is very sinister. Why only women? Uh, why keep us? Why keep us down? Why keep us erased? Why keep us threatened? Why keep our spaces not not safe for us? Why? You know, where's it come from? Where has it come from? I, I don't know. I don't have the answers to this, and I can only follow the debate. And even just uh, before we get on to the news story as well, when you think about all the drag uh, artists out there, the so-called drag queens, you know, there's no drag kings. Have you ever seen an uh, an act where uh, a, a group of men would go to see, you know, another, a woman who's pretending to be a man at a strip club? No, it's always men or women that are going to see these drag queens, you know, at, uh, you know, strip clubs. You don't see a drag king story hour. It's always so-called drag queen story hour, which is men masquerading as women, uh, parodies almost you know with the the huge wigs and the big false eyelashes and the slapping of makeup and the extreme outfits and one thing and another it's it's the equivalent blackface equivalent to uh denigrating women i believe is what men are doing with these acts in particular and again when's the last time you heard of drag king story are when's the last time you heard of uh, a group of men going out to see a woman pretending to be a man at a strip club it's always the other way around always the the traffic's a one it's a one-way street with the traffic on this one Gemma it is and actually when you put it like that you know the the discrimination aspect of drag and, and i'm not going to open a big can of worms but if you think about it it presents the sexualized aspect of womanhood uh, the the, mm -hmm. the exaggerated body shape the makeup mm -hmm. the hair you know this is these are things that women have been trying to get away from for millennia being judged on appearance only and not the content of your character or you know or, or your ability to interact in the world in an equal fashion it's always sexualization and that is where you know women are, that's where we're discriminated against we've only got value in society based on the way we look that is something yeah. we are trying so desperately hard to move away from and it is taking far longer than it should i mean you have a daughter of your own rick and i'm mm -hmm. sure you don't want her entering the world now she's an adult solely based mm -hmm. on her currency of tits and ass that's effectively mm -hmm. it isn't it and how much mm -hmm. makeup and uh, what does the hair look like and and drag mm -hmm. emphasizes those aspects of womanhood and that's not just what a woman is far far from it we do have a long way to go we, we really do we do, but at least, uh, you know, we're highlighting this and we're calling this out as and when we can, even uh, as an aside to what the, the main story of the day is. And I digress a little bit from that. Uh, water bosses uh, facing ban and bonuses, but the move is too weak and feeble, say the Lib Dems in the UK. So, yeah, bonuses, fat cats, the cats, the fat cats are getting fatter, uh, albeit at a reduced rate, but they're still getting fatter, aren't they? Well, I'm not to I'm mean, that we talk about the misuse of public.
country were taxed very heavily uh, and we don't really get a say on how you know the NHS is not funded properly yet our money goes to war we talk about the fact that you know our taxpayers money isn't spent wisely but then this this story illustrates also how we pay for services that are in the corporate sector and the money also <laughs> doesn't make the service fit for purpose so it's the ongoing um talk about our water companies in the UK and the amount of sewage that they are illegally pumping into our rivers and streams. Uh, and there's been a two-year campaign waging now against the bosses of this, these companies who receive staggering bonuses, staggering, absolutely staggering bonuses. Um, but this campaign is finally having some leverage and apparently the bosses will now face um, a ban on any bonuses if they're found to be overseeing illegal dumping of sewage into rivers and streams. And believe you me, in the UK, there is a lot of it about. Um, the, the UK Environment Secretary has announced that the payouts will be blocked uh, to water chiefs. Um, and some of the figures are staggering. I mean, over the last four years, a total of 26 million has been dished out to the water company bosses in the UK. Nine chief executives took 10 million in bonuses, 14 million in incentives, and uh, 603,000 in, in benefits and perks like travel expenses, all those kind of things. Uh, I think the problem comes here is that UK water companies, as we've discussed, are no longer owned by UK firms. Um, mm -hmm. Only 10% of the water companies have shareholders now from UK firms and businesses who, you know, live in Britain, work in Britain, have to use the water in Britain. Um, everything else is now privatized and outsourced to foreign companies. And when you re read the names, we've talked about this before, some of the major shareholders in British water include BlackRock, Vanguard, uh, Lazard, JP Morgan, uh, as assessment management. A lot of our water companies are owned by China, Qatar, Abu Dhabi. So they don't care. They don't care. You know, they've got these huge, huge, huge multi-billion investment and equity companies that are in charge of our water. Um, and, and they're giving their shareholders and, and chief executives these huge bonuses. Last year, five out of the 11 water companies, the bosses took the money. They took these huge bonuses, but six declined to take the bonuses because they were aware of such anger in Britain now about the state of our water services. And actually this campaign has come exactly the right time because what the water companies had announced was they said, we realize that uh, our, our, the infrastructure is crumbling. We realize that this is a very old and antiquated system. We realize that we're not putting enough money into it. So what we're gonna do is charge every consumer in the UK an extra 156 pounds a year to pay for it all. You know, when they're getting these huge bonuses. So this campaign, you know, it does hasn't really tapped into the public anger because I, if I was billed an extra £156 to pay for it, I certainly wouldn't pay the extra money. Um, no. Many people are saying the campaign doesn't go far enough. There's no doubt that the state of our water in the UK is absolutely shocking. But I think it's because we've got companies like BlackRock and Vanguard overseeing them and they really don't care. They're literally on the other side of the world, most of these people. They are. And the thing is, too, these bonuses are on top of humongous salaries uh, that these guys are paid in the first place. So it was revealed that bosses received more than 26 million in bonuses, benefits and incentives over the last four years. Analysis by the Labour Party found nine water chief execs were paid 10 million in bonuses, 14 million in incentives and 603,000 pounds in extra benefits since 2019. Can you just even begin to fathom that amount of money? And that's only split between uh, nine people, Gemma. Nine people. You're talking 10 million bonuses, 14 million incentives, and 603,000 benefits between nine people. Nine, not 90 or 900, nine people. And you wonder where that saying comes from. You know, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poor. Uh, I think the spotlight 
definitely uh, deserves to be shown in the water industry for this, which you have very kindly done this morning. So big thanks to you, Jim, for that one. Uh, we will talk again tomorrow morning, all being well at nine on uh, Open Line. And please stay tuned. In the meantime, we have Kit Knightley joining us here on the other side of the break. So don't go away. Stay tuned for more on TNT, today's news talk. TNT's Pervoy Morich. He details factually how Russia is rolling out the algorithm ghetto, um, you know, the, the, the multipolar edition of the algorithm ghetto, a prototype of a traffic light that records traffic violations by a pedestrian at a crossing was tested in Moscow. So Russians now, they'll, they'll have a, the government will take a snapshot of their face and then run that through the databases to figure out who is who and then find them, uh, I suppose. Uh, and then, you know, he, he points out that there are a lot of developments now, Moscow 2030, it's, it's uh, they want to make uh, Moscow achieve smart city status. Uh, and there's just, you know, you, you look at the white papers, Moscow and Russia are all in on Agenda 2030, smart cities, algorithm ghetto, digital IDs. Pervoy Morich on today's News Talk TNT. Sometimes life can be overwhelming and suicide may seem like the only way to relieve the pain. Beyond Now is an evidence-based app created by Beyond Blue to help you cope when suicidal thoughts start to appear. You can use it to create an easy-to-follow plan that is personal to you and includes steps like know your warning signs so you can act early, make your environment safe by removing harmful items, activities you can do or people you can be with to distract yourself from suicidal thoughts, reminders of things that make you feel strong, some of these steps might be tough to fill out, and that's okay. It can be helpful to make or share your safety plan with a trusted friend, family member, or mental health professional. You might feel like you're alone, but help is available. If you're worried you can't stay safe, use the red telephone icon to call your emergency contacts. Download the free Beyond Now app today to create your personal safety plan. So many people who had no history of heart illnesses have got it now, or blood clotting after the COVID-19 vaccination. Punish those who hurt people with COVID madness, lighting the fuse for freedom. TNT Radio. Okay, very happy to be joined this morning, this lovely, beautiful Monday morning by none other than Kit Knightley. Kit is an independent journalist who uh, contributes to Off Guardian. And there's an awful lot of water passing under the bridge at the moment, Kit, even since the last time we spoke. Uh, a lot of developments on the world stage. Looks like uh, 2024 could be a very significant year in world history. It looks like the wheels are coming off a lot of globalist narratives at the minute, and it seems to be coinciding with a lot of pushback on the ground by people. Rather than talking about things, a lot of boots on streets with farmers protests and you know protests against uh, plantations of immigrants in Irish uh, communities across Europe. A lot of kickback going on at the minute. Do you think we could see a lot of a lot of upheaval this year? What do you reckon? Um, absolutely. I think if you look at um, going all the way back to 2020, which is a, a long time ago now, they had the rollout of COVID, which had some very grandiose plans associated with it that never really came to fruition. So they spent basically 2022 and 2023, like addressing where they went wrong. Like they, they seeded narratives that for one thing, mainly attacked 
the um the sort of clouded um covid resistance which it was a very powerful form of resistance because it was just a herd of individuals all acting individually but also in coordination and so they spent a good portion of time trying to see where that resistance stopped them um and remove it and now they're they're sort of building momentum up to do what they were planning to do i think in late 2020 early 2021 which is well i, I wrote an article about it in january of this year um basically put a rough shape on what global government will actually look like uh-huh. and and the, there does seem to be a convergence that they're trying to push for a type of convergence at the minute uh so there was an article that you had highlighted that was uh lifted from uh, the uk government's latest statement on the the who the world health organization's pandemic treaty and actually that pandemic treaty uh, i'm sure you can remember around about two years ago they first fielded this idea of having a coordinated response to the the next pandemic that will be coming along because if you think about it a lot of holes were highlighted in the globalist strategy because you had some places like Canada and Australia and New Zealand were operating under terrible, terrible lockdown conditions. Then you had places like Sweden that were effectively open. And even in America, you had red and blue states that were completely different in terms of your living. So if you lived in Texas or Florida, uh, it was kind of business as usual. People were living normal lives. But if you lived in New York or California, you you were under the most draconian uh, totalitarian lockdowns and enforced masking. I think they realized if this thing is to work the way they want it to, they really need to tighten the screws in all areas. Otherwise, uh, these loopholes will give people an opportunity to point and say, well, they're not doing it, so why should I do it? Uh, what do you think about that? That's why they need that That's type in- of coordinated response. Absolutely. And I think, oddly, the biggest the biggest weakness in 2020-2021 was actually Africa. Huh. If you have, like, I'm not sure if you're aware of um, the... Um, the president of Tanzania mm-hmm. um, basically said, "We're not, we're not doing COVID here. This is, this is all rubbish. We're not doing it." Um, then he died, um, and his successor said, "Actually, we will do COVID after all." Um, it was a heart attack, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the COVID treaty addresses this quite directly because it seems to incentivize developing nations to declare pandemics for the sake of pandemic support payments and so on from. Mm-hmm. From the world health organization basically if you say you have a pandemic we will give you money um that's one thing that's being addressed and yeah there will be um well i think more importantly the, ne- the next pandemic is going to be either up before or after the climate change pandemic um the climate change is going to be um it's always talked about now in terms of being a, a major health crisis at, at davos just just a few weeks ago, there was a how climate is affecting your health panel. And um, in 2022, they published a paper saying why we should start um, adding climate change to death certificates. Um, so there's going to be climate related deaths piling up just as mm-hmm. there were COVID deaths. And um, and if, as I've written before, if you then associate climate change with health, then you can associate climate and all you need is climate change legislation to contribute to health legislation all over the world. Which is what I think they're going to do later this year. I think you're. I think you're right. And actually, you highlighted uh, that president of uh, Tanzania. His name was John Magafuli. Uh, I, yeah. I, I've been to uh, various parts of East Africa, so I was following what was happening 
there very, very closely during the beginning of the pandemic, and I still can uh, get reports back from friends in Uganda and Kenya as well. But Mago Fuli famously uh, stood against uh, injections. He stood against lockdowns, face masking and everything else, even the PCR testing. He very famously at national TV, he tested engine oil, a guava and a goat, uh, and they yeah. swabbed them and they all came back showing positive for COVID. Uh, he was, uh, ex- well, he, as you say, allegedly died of a heart attack, but I don't know if you know this or not, but about a month before he died, there was an article published in The Guardian in the UK that was sponsored by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to say that he needed to be reined in, that this man was yeah. dangerous and needed to be were- reined in. A month later, he was dead, and they actually removed the sponsorship of the Gates Foundation sponsorship from that article because of the amount of questions that were asked. Yes, and the, the successor, uh, the lady that came in successing, was a very highly affiliated World Economic Forum member. She was the yeah, I- uh, deputy president of TZ at the time. Crazy, isn't it? I wrote I wrote an article about that at the time. There are a bunch of articles basically saying this guy needs to go. This guy, this guy's mm-hmm. this guy's off the rails. And then a month later he was dead. Um yeah. there was another one earlier than that. Another, I think it was I think it was Burkina Faso. Pierre. Yes. Mm-hmm. It paints basically the exact same situation. Mm-hmm. I forget his name, unfortunately. Um he there were actually he said five. Not- there were actually there were actually five. There was somebody made a poster up, uh, and around about 2020, 2021, someone made a poster up of all the African leaders that had died suddenly and mysteriously in relatively good health. Uh, I think there was at least five, possibly six, uh, died of which John Magafili. He was the most high profile one because Tanzania is obviously a much uh, bigger and more influential con- country than and the because of the, the PCR tests, which was his yeah. his cardinal sin was the PCR test thing. They never yeah. forgave him. That. He poured scorn upon them, and a month later, uh, Epstein, like he was gone uh, with an alleged heart attack. Uh, we've got to take a, a brief uh, pause right now, for, just for news headlines. And when we come back to the other side, yeah, it just will continue along this theme of exam- examining the, the the holes that were shown in the narrative, and hence the clampdown that we're seeing. A lot of which on our free speech at the minute here. So please don't go away. Stay tuned for more on TNT today's news talk. Today's News Talk Radio. We, we, we do have some big news. What is it? Yeah, what is it? What is it now? TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Less than two years after taking office, Hungary's first ever female president has sensationally resigned amid an unprecedented political scandal. US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin has found himself back in hospital, this time with an emergent bladder issue. And Israel has launched a wave of violent airstrikes on the city of Rafa in southern Gaza, which has become the last place of refuge for nearly two million Palestinians displaced by the war. The common housefly, caught in the clutches of the spider's web. Every move it makes just makes matters worse. Then, dinner time. Feast on the captivating stories, videos, and helpful information on our website. Oh. Dinner's ready. Oh, man. Escape is futile. Just one more video. Get stuck in our web. TNT Radio. Dot live. Okay, talking with uh, Kit Knightley, live, uncensored, and totally unscripted here this morning on TNT Today's News Talk. Uh, Kit is a contributor for Off Guardian. We're just reminiscing, uh, walking down memory lane as far back as four years ago about some of the uh, mysterious deaths that occurred amongst those who were very vocally outspoken against the COVID narratives that were being pushed, especially in Africa. Uh, Kit, uh, this uh, piece that I was referencing before we diverted and talked about uh, Africa, the stark naked brief, uh, talking about 
the UK government wanting to work in lockstep potentially with the WHO pandemic treaties. Uh, it says here the UK underlines our commitment to agreement of a new pandemic accord. So they're obviously very firmly behind it and targeted amendments of international health regulations, which ensure our preparedness and future health threats will be dealt with uh, efficiently. So of course, this is being positioned. It's for our good. It's for the common good. Also, they highlight uh, for the first time, maybe people won't have seen AMR, Antimicrobial Resistance Awareness with a high level meeting on this later on in 2024 an unprecedented opportunity to move towards a global agenda. So they're actually using the words global agenda here. And lastly, the UK welcomes this week's focus, and this was written in January, at COP28 leaders noted climate change is now a health crisis. As has been said many times, one can only face collectively with the World Health Organization playing a key role. What's a health organization doing? playing a key role in what effectively, if it existed, was a, a, a geographical or a, you know, a, a, a scientific uh, problem. It's nothing to do with health, is it? Well, I mean, it wasn't until 2019. And then in 2020, suddenly it was. Um, you can you can go back to the archives. There are dozens of articles that pop up saying that climate change is now a health crisis, how heat waves are going to affect public health. We need to treat climate change like we treated COVID, that kind of thing. Um, basically, it's trying to like take what people were already afraid of, which is COVID, and apply it to climate change, which for even though they've been talking about it for decades, people have never been as scared of climate change as they were of COVID. They they take that direct threat and they try and apply it to climate change. And more than that, it's a rhetorical trick. Because if climate change is an, is an environmental issue, a geo a geographical issue. Or, then it's it's a long-term issue. It's a it's an issue that gets talked about on the back page and stuff. But if it's a public health issue, it's no longer a public health issue, it's a public health crisis, then it, it requires immediate action. And more than that, it, it requires action that you can pass under legislation you've already passed, like the emergency public health acts that pretty much all countries pass because of COVID can be simply retooled to apply to climate change. Which is why people, I mean, in 2021, people actually floated the idea of climate lockdowns and stuff like that. That went away because of basically because of vocal protests. But that's the kind of thing that will bring back. Do you find or do you think, obviously, being a journalist, you know the importance of words and selecting the right words to make your point. Uh, the, the selection of words is very, very subtle in a lot of uh, press releases that are coming out from our governments at the minute. We saw a lot of words redefined over the last four years. For example, uh, the word pandemic was redefined. Uh, the word vaccine, the actual definition of what a vaccine was, was redefined as well. We're starting to see uh, things being brushed under the carpet conveniently to make narratives fit. Do you think in 2024, we're into 2024 now, isn't it hard to believe we're coming up on the fourth year anniversary of when all this madness started? You would have thought it would have went away by now, but I think they're just getting warmed up. Could we see more definitions of more words, especially with regards to weather and climate being possibly rewritten this year? Or what do you think? Well, absolutely. I mean, the major one for COVID was really cause of death. They totally rewrote the meaning of what a cause of death is. Death within 28 days of a positive COVID test is obviously absurd, but they can do that to climate now. They, if you die for any reason during what they consider to be abnormal weather, you'll be called a climate change death. Um, and you'll be recorded as such on the death certificate and everything. Um, that will be that will almost certainly start happening, probably in Canada or Australia, because for some reason those two always go first. Um, uh, um, 
and public you health see, crisis that, will be on, applied. On, on that point, well. actually, uh, you mentioned Canada there, uh, just uh, in case I lose this, uh, because you make a good point about climate change deaths being noted on birth or on death certificates, for example. In the UK, last uh, summer, uh, in Ireland, we, we've been told that last year in Ireland, it was the warmest uh, summer in history, which is complete tripe. I live here in Ireland. You know, I've lived here for 50 years. It was not the warmest uh, summer. We had about a week's worth of heat in June, and we had another couple of days in October. That was about it. But we're being told this was the warmest summer in history. And we're told a lot of people died as a result of that. More people statistically, uh, in the UK and Ireland, more people statistically die of the cold in the wintertime, yet old people freezing to death with hypothermia because they can't afford to heat their houses. You never hear about uh, global cooling deaths. It's always global warming deaths tied in with, you know, uh, allegedly uh, increased levels of CO2. Therefore, it's bad. Therefore, we need carbon taxing. Uh, why do they never focus on the cold? Why is it always the heat? Well, they, they can focus on the cold now because of, you're using slightly outdated terminology. They don't call it global, global warming anymore. It's climate change. So if it gets colder yeah. and people die, that that's the same thing. Um, though, I don't know. I mean, it's, historically speaking, people always die more during the winter. Um, and so you like supposing that this was a real position that they were holding sincerely, the argument against it would be, well, even if more people start dying during the summer, fewer people will die during the winter and it will more or less balance itself out. But um, it's not a sincere position made in good faith. So there's not really any point in countering it like that. Yeah. One, one last uh, question I have for you here, uh, just before we wrap this one up. Uh, interestingly, as you know, Elon Musk is an extremely polarizing character. Some people think he's the Messiah. Other people think he's the devil incarnate. He made an interesting comment last week uh, about uh, carbon taxing. He says one of the ways that we can tackle uh, this whole business of climate change is to implement carbon taxes of people. Is there a case of selective hearing amongst certain people who are undecided or on the fence about Elon Musk when he comes out with statements like that, where he's actually advocating for a carbon tax to tackle climate change, they conveniently don't hear it or don't want to talk about it? Yes. <laughs> yes, there is a case of selective hearing or that kind of thing. Um, and Elon, the Elon Musk thing is quite a clever rhetorical trick that they're doing as well, because you've got Elon Musk, who's meant to be anti-establishment, you know, he's coming up with this no-nonsense approach of, we should just have a carbon tax. Well, like other mainstream voices push, well, we should have a tax on this, and we should limit people's use of that, and we should uh, put smart meters on people's homes to stop them using too much gas. And it all very sounds very complicated and dystopian, and it is complicated and dystopian. But then Elon comes up with the rational alternative which is oh we have carbon tax and so you have the two positions established which are either we do climate change like this or we do climate change like that and it completely wipes out the we don't need to do anything about climate change at all position yeah it's it's an interesting one uh, it brings a right smile to my face because there's a few friends i have you know so oh, i'm still undecided about this game on the side it seems to be the more that the evidence stacks up uh, against them if you need any evidence uh the more they selectively refuse to acknowledge it but i just thought i would run that one past you just to get your input on that one but yes i think it's brought a right smile uh to your face as well kit we've got to stop now uh the time has flown by actually we've covered an awful lot of ground here this morning so a big thanks to you uh for joining us this no morning problem. that's kit knightley i uh, follow him please by the way on uh, x or twitter at kit k-i-t underscore knightley k-n-i-g 
H-T-L-Y. And also you can find his writings on off-guardian.org. So have a great day, kid, and uh, stay in touch. And no doubt uh, we will be uh, talking again, hopefully, sooner rather than later. So thanks to you, Kit. And please stay tuned after the break. David Thunder will be joining me to talk about uh, more areas close to home here in Ireland. So don't go away. Stay tuned for more on TNT, today's news talk. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. Well, the latest in the Michael Mann versus Mark Stein trial is a little bit interesting. And I'm trying to figure out if this is right. Apparently, Dr. Mann's lawyers, there are four of them, and remember, Mark Stein is defending himself by himself. Apparently, they've asked for a nominal fee as far as damages go. And there is a rumor that what was asked for, now sit down, you ready for this? Was $1. Now, Mark Stein has spent around $3.5 million, I've heard. I don't know, maybe it's more, maybe it's less. Defending himself from Michael Mann and Michael Mann's lawsuit over the fact that Mark Stein thinks that Michael Mann hid the data and he called him a fraud. Right now, I could see, for instance, let's say uh, the number one climatologist in the world said that to you. That's one thing. But Mark Stein is a journalist. That's the first thing. Second thing is he had to raise the money to defend himself. And we've gone over this. But one dollar. Why would Michael Mann only want one dollar? You know why? He just wants the decision. He just wants to be able to say, see, he actually did defame me. I won the court case. Well, I don't think Stein wants any part of that because of the fact that he wants to drill it home that what Michael Mann did, take two samples out of 22 and then hide, he did. He hit the data from people who would criticize it and actually tear it apart. Mark Stein wants that to come out. One's pursuing the truth, the other seems to be hiding it. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog, meteorologist Joe Bastardi, asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. Many pollution sources can affect the air you breathe, from power plants and vehicles to dust and wildfires. Knowing more about local air quality can help you protect your health. If you're thinking about buying an air sensor, EPA has a series of videos to help you get the most out of it. Learn how EPA collects and uses regulatory data, how EPA communicates health messaging, and how to interpret the readings from your sensor. Visit epa.gov air sensor toolbox. This is Lock and Loaded with Rick Munn on TNT. Very nearly turned into a guitar special did this uh, and up in the studio now and uh, David also chewing the fat on uh, music, uh, guitars in particular. Uh, we all like to strum a little bit and if anybody out there is a guitar player, you'll know what we're talking about. It's very good for your mind and it's good for your fingers, your hand-eye coordination as well. But anyway, this is not a music special here today. I'm very happy to be joined again by none other than David Thunder. We're going to get 20 minutes to talk this morning, so dig into a lot of other issues. Follow him on the X platform at David J. Thunder. And also he has a subject, Substack, davidthunder.substack.com. Welcome back to the show this morning. And uh, how's life been treating you over the weekend? Thank you, Rick. Yeah, nice, nice, relaxing weekend. It was, it was good. good. Thanks. 
Well, let's get uh, let's get the week off to a bang. No pun intended with TNT. Uh, TNT is, of course, uh, the standing for dynamite, trinitrotoline. It also stands for uh, today's news talk. We want to talk about some quite explosive topics this morning, David. One in which, in particular, was uh, a piece that you had uh, written to do with uh, the Freedom Blog. Uh, these farmers' protests that are happening have been getting a lot of coverage uh, amongst the alternative media. Uh, not so much in the main mainstream media, but it has got to that tipping point now where when you disrupt disrupt enough of society, you disrupt enough infrastructure that people will sit up and take notice and your voice will be heard. I think we're starting to see some ground being made uh, by the farmers across Europe uh, this week and last week, which is encouraging to see. Absolutely, yes. Um, I mean, the farmers have basically shut down a large part of the arteries of Europe, if you want, the highways of Europe. Um, in and it spread starting in Germany and France, and then you saw it in Portugal and Spain and Greece, and it kind of just spread like wildfire across Europe. And eventually, uh, the sign that the protests actually had an impact is that the European Commission uh, started to back down on a lot of its climate uh, policies, um, at least temporarily, and to say they were going to give relief to the farmers and they were not going to enforce their climate goals strictly. Um, at least this side of the elections. So, of course, there's a European election just around the corner in June. Um, and that's, I think, playing into this, that the European Commission doesn't want to have this kind of thing dragging out just ahead of a, an election. Uh, interesting, you know, the way uh, governments seem to be a lot more malleable when it comes to election time. Von der Leyen last week, uh, she backed down on the the, the use of, uh, you know, for certain chemicals and, you know, nitrates. We talked about this the last time you were on, actually. Uh, it seems to be there's a little bit of an appeasement given there. But knowing globalists, uh, they usually take uh, two steps forward and then they'll take that step back to make people think that they're gaining ground. But with this, the breadth of these protests, David, and uh, the amount of people involved and the passion that we're seeing in these protests, I don't think they're going to be so easy to be fobbed off, do you? I don't think so. Uh, I think that the fact that they actually got some uh, progress, that they got a reaction from the commission, that they saw the commission back away, even, even if it was temporary, um, and even if they know the farmers are not stupid, they know that this is because of the elections as well. Um, but I think that this is a pretty important precedent. And I would say that if the commission tries to push back again with the with the climate agenda very hard on the farmers um, after after the elections, I would say we're looking at another round of protests and probably another standoff. And so in a way, these protests have shown that the climate agenda, as it's currently conceived, is simply unrealistic, politically speaking. Um, I don't think you can destroy someone's way of life or someone's livelihood and not expect a backlash from that. Uh, there was a very good point made uh, by someone that I saw commenting on this over the weekend to say, you know things are bad when farmers, farmers are taking out en masse to the streets and causing mass disruption like this. They're not exactly a group of people that you normally associate with disruption and beleaguerance or uh, taking to the streets, blocking off arterial routes. Uh, not the sort of people you would normally associate with that. And by and large, a lot of these farmers are older men uh, who have been in the business for a long time. They're not gangs of feral youth that are running around causing disruption. So the point was rightly made. When the farmers are protesting like this, you know that something is seriously off 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I was just thinking about this the other day, the fact that we haven't really seen that many farmers protests. I mean, we don't associate mm. farmers with, you know, with revolutions and with, uh, you know, mm. going out of the streets and even with politics. Uh, nor, you don't see you don't see them doing these kinds of things. So so I agree that it's it's definitely a sign that something is um, changing in the atmosphere, in the political atmosphere in Europe. And um, I think it will have a knock-on effect. I think that, in particular, other uh, political actors or potential political actors will be looking at this, like transport, the transport industry, which who are heavily affected by uh, regulations, uh, energy regulations. And they'll be seeing what the farmers got out of this protest, and they'll probably be more likely to mobilize in the future. So from the point of view of the Commission and those who want to implement these policies, I think this was a very significant uh, setback. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. And also as well, I don't think a lot of people understand, you know, the importance of farmers. Yes, of course, we know that they, you know, they're responsible for dairy farming, for beef production, uh, for growing crops. I don't think anybody's been hit badly enough with a lack of food uh, to understand just how important farmers are at this point in time. So effectively, they're, you know, they're, they're stepping into the breach, not just for themselves because it's obviously their jobs and their livelihood are dependent upon this but if they feel or if they are uh you know controlled to the extent that europe wants to control them it's going to affect you and me uh, irrespective of what our political beliefs are who we believe in whether we vote or whether we don't because hunger is doesn't discriminate and hunger doesn't differentiate and a lack of food uh, is not uh, politically motivated it's something that's going to affect everybody and everybody's going to feel this if the eu get their way yeah, and I think it gives pause for thought to climate activists. It should give pause for thought to climate activists, and they should reconsider how they're achieving their goals. Setting aside the science of climate change, let's just assume that there that there's something valid to these policies, um, without entering into the science behind them. Even if they were scientifically valid, um, the issue here is that you can't ram through uh, climate change policies in a way that does enormous damage to such an important industry. And I think um, it's like any kind of policy change you want to make. You need to consult the stakeholders. You need to take their opinions into perspective, into consideration and their interests. And you need to be careful not to crush industries, not to crush the little people, so to speak. And that's just sensible policymaking. And here, the European Commission has completely failed at its job of actually getting buy-in from the relevant industries before ramming through a policy. And that is the mm -hmm. failure of this, Of that's their primary failure here, has been just ramming through a policy without considering and consulting uh, relevant stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And now uh, they're, they're, we're getting the fallout from that, which is w uh, what these protests are all about. Uh, something else that you highlighted uh, over the weekend here, uh, ashamed that my country, Ireland, is represented in the EU by Maria Walsh, uh, who's a uh, member of the European Parliament for Ireland. She naively assumes that prosecuting hate speech will not politicise the criminal justice system. She seems to be okay with the EU Commission being the arbiters of truth and false 
falsehood online. So this ties in a little bit with what we're talking about with regards to these protests. They, we are now, David, I believe, as in the, the voices collectively of people that are rising up and opposing the globalism that is being thrust upon us are becoming a massive thorn in the flesh of the globalists at the minute. And I think that's why they're really going hell for leather to try and clamp down on what we can say online and to brand us eco-terrorists or, you know, a right-wing extremists or derogatory terms. You know, I don't know you personally, okay, but you seem like a decent enough guy. You don't seem like a right-wing fascist extremist to me. Uh, maybe I come across that way to some people, but I'm, I'm a, I'm just, I just want to live my life, man. I just want to, and my family to be secure. I just want to uh, live, uh, you know, without being dictated to what I can and can't eat or what I can and can't drive. I'm not a fascist. I'm not an extremist right winger either. But yet they're hell bent on keeping us quiet. Do they really perceive us as a threat? They must. Or they wouldn't be putting so much effort into shutting us up. Yeah, I think that if if you try to uh, censor somebody, shut down their speech, um, then clearly you have to be motivated by something. You must have a reason for doing that. And so my assumption is that um, people who regulate speech do indeed perceive that speech as a threat. Now, it could be that they see it as a threat for the reasons that they publicly declare, namely that they think that this person is going to be propagating disinformation or somehow uh, promoting hate speech, or it could be simply more pragmatically that that person is disagreeing with their political position and their political project. And so they perceive it as a threat for that reason. Now, Maria Walsh, I have nothing against her personally. I'm sure she could be a lovely person in person. But mm -hmm. to hear uh, somebody representing my country stand up and praise the Digital Services Act and, and call for the censorship of what she calls illegal hate speech, um, it really, I find that to be somewhat, uh, well, it makes me feel shame, honestly, um, because uh, to, to basically uh, assume that you can use a crude instrument like the law to, to, to distinguish between true and false speech, hateful and non-hateful speech, is extremely uh, disingenuous and naive um, because the very notion of hate speech historically has, has been all, always been turned against particular political positions of particular groups. Um, it could be people who disagree with the transgender um, lobby, for example. They will be targeted and have been targeted by hate speech laws. It's never a politically neutral tool. I think that's the point that really gets me when I see a member of parliament stand up and praise it. Um, mm -hmm. Could Maria Walsh really be so naive that she doesn't understand that this kind of legislation will be turned against certain groups and used for partisan political purposes? I, I wouldn't, I, personally speaking, I don't buy that she she's that naive. It's a little bit like the the doctors or the experts that you know were pushing the vaccine during the the scandemic years who all of a sudden did a u-turn and realized hey maybe this wasn't such a good thing maybe we should have had informed consent they had their uh, damascus road experiences you know three years after the event i'm not saying that people can't change their minds david uh not at all i've changed my mind about many issues over the course of my life but 
if you take, for example, Maria Walsh, she must, I mean, she's not, she's not daft. You don't get into the position that she's in without, you know, having a little bit of savvy about you. How she couldn't look at this and say, well, what could the drawbacks to this be? She only seems to be focusing on perceived positives here. There's no negatives uh, associated with her statement here. When you get, you don't have any negatives in anything. You don't have any balance. And if you don't have any balance, it tends to me uh, you're leaning towards a narrative that's being thrust upon you. You're being to support so that's my own uh, particular take on it but as you say she could be a nothing person against her I've never met her before she could be a lovely woman but having said that uh, she's coming out with some very dangerous rhetoric uh, in uh, in Brussels uh, if we can move her attention across to Ireland at the minute of course said that uh, she's coming out with some very dangerous rhetoric uh, in uh, in Brussels uh, if we can move her attention across to Ireland at the minute of course someone that's somewhere that's very dear to both of our hearts uh, another uh, question that you posed uh, yesterday on X and you can follow David on X or Twitter at David uh, J Thunder was to do with uh Politics in Ireland, uh, a lot of upheaval going on there as well at the minute. You asked the question uh, yesterday, if I can get it up here, it's to do with why are there no, uh, yes, here it is here, a question for my fellow Irish citizens. This is something that you've posed. Why has no new party uh, of the right uh, been able to significantly threaten the voter base of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, despite of their incredible incompetence over recent years, surely there must be an appetite for an alternative to FG and FF that stands for personal freedom, responsibility, public order, fair and orderly immigration. At the minute, uh, I would say it's going to be the uh, hot, you know, Sinn Féin in Ireland, their their popularity has waned. They're, they've lost a lot of uh, ground in their opinion polls recently. Faradgar and co, you look at the, the like of Helen McEntee, you look at Roderick O'Gorman, you look at these people, uh, Eamon Ryan, that are in situ at the minute, they seem to be hell-bent on destroying Ireland. Is it a case of, um, it's only a matter of uh, when, not if these people get removed, because surely uh, they can only go so far without the penny really dropping for the masses in Ireland and an alternative is found. Maybe not immediately, but surely the writing's on the wall for them. What do you think? Well, um, certainly in the medium to long term, I I just can't I can't I'd be very surprised if these people uh, continued uh, to hold power in the way that they have. I mean, all politicians eventually lose power, uh, and so in that sense, eventually, of course, they're going to lose power. I mean, what frustrates me is just that it seems to take so long to get them out, and um, and and I think part of the problem is that in Ireland. They're just, for historical reasons, maybe the voter, voters are extremely conservative and um, tend to, I mean, the civil war basically, you know, fixed a lot of the party alignments uh, in Ireland. And people continue to vote uh, for either Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael, um, you know, in a very kind of slavish fashion, if I may. I mean, I think... Um, maybe if you want to put it in a more positive light, in a traditional way, that they might vote mm. uh, as their traditional party. But that's not what citizenship is about. It's not about following blindly following a tradition. Um, it's about looking out for the interests of other citizens and your own interests and, and, and appointing someone who is competent and is, uh, and, and is responsible. Um, and these parties have consistently shown themselves to be reckless Reckless during the pandemic, Ireland had one of the worst uh, records in the pandemic in terms of you know the the 
they had the most extreme measures um, of confinement and 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 of shutting down businesses and, and churches and so on. Um, but also in terms of housing, that they have made a hames of the housing issue. Um, they have not been able to facilitate, um, um, you know, uh, a proper rate of of build of construction in Ireland. And then the immigration uh, issue, they've completely made a mess of. Um, I have nothing against migrants. I mean, I mean, I'm a, a migrant and immigrant myself, and I've wow. lived in a lot of different countries. But you have to be realistic. You, your country has to have the resources. It has to have the housing. It has to have the public services mm-hmm. that are able to cope with the people who are coming in. Um, and you have to have proper vetting and proper checks. And when there are, when somebody is going to be deported, well, deport them. That's the law has to be enforced. And the Irish government is simply by its own admission, not even enforced its own de- deportation mm-hmm. orders. So they're called self-deportations, which is a, which is a joke. So yeah. I agree that we're... So I basically think that um, it really comes down to initiative and entrepreneurship. If we have political entrepreneurship and initiative mm-hmm. and a strong platform, um, then, then I think there is room. There's room in the Irish political market for a new party. That could compete and with I think the that, fall I, I think there's an appetite for it. Not only is there room for it, David, but I think there's a real uh, voracious appetite for that at the minute. And I do believe uh, Ireland absolutely has to adapt uh, to, to get over uh, these terrible problems that it's faced that are thrust upon us by the current uh, so-called leadership, either through Fianna Fáil or uh, Fine Gael. The music's playing in the background. That means we're out of time here. It goes by so quick. Uh, I have to appreciate you again for coming on and just lending your opinion and your in- insight and expertise to these issues. So that's David Thunder. Follow him, David J. Thunder on X Twitter and also David J. Thunder Substack.com. Follow him there. Show him some love and support. We'll stay in contact, David, and hopefully talk again sooner or later.